for September 24th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 534. Boom! Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and enjoying the things we love uh, in the group of us. The things we love are so much more fun when we talk them over together. Uh, I'm Matt Rather, and I am here with overthinkers Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. And Jordan Stokes. Hey, Jordan. Hello. <laughs> Pete Fenzel has uh, gone silent. He's uh, deep underwater in, uh, in I, w- I won't call it enemy territory, <laughs> but uh, he's, he's uh, deep underwater and will resurface next week for the next, uh, the next episode of the Overthinking It podcast. So uh, sometimes we take a break from the grind of uh, watching the film of the week to talk about a topic that interests us in general, like we've done in the last couple of weeks with our podcast about alone time and our podcast about uh, board games and, and so on. But sometimes we like to go back to a classic of the genre. Sometimes we like to do, you know, go, go, just go back to the 101 course, the overthinking it 101 course. And a recent development in the culture gives us occasion to look back at a classic and we are going to jump at the opportunity or we're going to swan dive into the opportunity or we are going to cut ourselves from the umbilical cable as we dangle from the helicopter and drop into the cold and raging sea of opportunity. Uh, So you may have seen the Jack Ryan television show that Amazon uh, produced and is promoting super heavily. I think probably because it cost, you know, the, the gross domestic product of several developing nations in order to make this thing um, and uh, take the character and update it to the modern day and make him young and, you know, make him kind of brooding. It is for certain intents and purposes, a gritty reboot of the, the Jack Ryan character and certain things as with the classic myths, uh, certain things are there, but certain things are, are open to interpretation one is that Jack Ryan, spoiler alert, sleeps with a metronome in order to uh, a metronome on in order to to calm his not not sleeps with a metronome like it's his girlfriend. That's what I interpreted. No. Yeah, I was going to say, is that what they're calling them these days? How does that even how does that even work? No, he puts a metronome on the nightstand and it's one of the old. I, I don't think I'm not even sure where I would buy one of the old pendulum metronomes. They're all the iPhone apps these days, but, uh, I, uh, he, he has one on his nightstand and he turns it on and it's, it's rhythmic clicking soothes him as he, uh, as he, you know, tries to forget the horrors of war in his past and, and the horrors of terrorism in his present. 
uh, fun fact, the, um, that, that also is the technique of the Morgan Freeman character in seven, which is maybe where Jack Ryan got the idea in the, in the new TV series. But no, and, and, and that series, I mean, suffice it to say that it is rote. It is like four square and down the middle, uh, in terms of execution down to the, like, you know, down to the, the, to the black sidekick saying I'm getting too old for this S or, you know, or words to that effect. It may not be exactly that. And it's, it's a shame that it's Wendell Pierce completely wasted in, in, uh, in a role when he can do so much better. Um, but, uh, it's on and we thought, well, let's look back at, the Jack Ryan character, and it just so happened that I saw The Hunt for Red October on Hulu. And so, comrades, our our mission is to uh, run silent deep into enemy territory and watch this old John McTurnan uh, espionage suspense action movie um, and uh and uh, try to uh try to get something out of it for a modern age a modern age that uh has seen perhaps one too many dark and gritty reboots so so i want to start um because the the amazon show is so uh, action-packed. There's so many, you know, big set pieces uh, set in big cities, set in in uh, uh, set in the desert. I think they filmed in the Middle East, or they might have gone to Morocco, or they might have. But I, I mean, they they filmed overseas, um, and they blew a lot of stuff up. I want to uh, I want to ask you guys your opinion about this. Um, is this an action movie? Jordan, what, what do you think? Or yeah, were you about to jump in? I was going to say Jack Ryan or Red October. No, not Jack, Red October. As we as let's let's leave Jack Ryan Ryan behind. The less said about it together. Let's let's talk about Red October. Is it an action movie? I mean, it is. The thing is that the actions taken by boats play out at boat speed. I don't know if you do. You guys remember that uh, there was a game trailer for some kind of online online mobile phone game or something like that, where you did naval combat, and it was sort of talking about the fact that boats are slow, and it had this narrator being like, you know, are you ready to take things slow? And there's footage of a battleship turning. Um, and it's very exciting, of course, because they're moving at the speed, you know, if they were to go any slower, they would get blown up and destroyed. So there's lots of nail-bitingly tense stuff where things are just slowly moving out of the way of a torpedo or something like that. Um, but, it, you know, it's kind of like a... This is an action movie in the same sense that Die Hard, as portrayed by an all-sloth cast of actors, would be an action movie, right? It is still action. There's just less of it, unless you want to make the movie like 12 hours long to pack in as much as you could get. I think that when I saw this as a kid, I was much less conscious of it being slow. But watching this in like a, a post-Jason Bourne kind of universe, I was really quite dramatically, um, you know, aware of the slowness of it. Yeah, this is 1990. And by the way, just a couple years after McTiernan had a huge hit with Die Hard. 
I hadn't completely not made that connection except in my head. So my head uh, <laughs> uh, in, in my subconscious. So my subconscious is a cinematic genius, but I'm just not aware of the director of Die Hard. <laughs> Mark, uh, you have feelings about uh, Red October as an action movie? Uh, I, I would call it more of a suspense movie since you brought that up. Um, because it's, it is not super kinetic. Um in the sense of the, of the modern action movie, as we were just talking about, uh, perhaps more importantly and substantively, and this might be a good opportunity to start to talk about the characters, uh, Jack Ryan, at least as he, con- he is conceived originally in the Tom Clancy books, and in particular in this movie, is not an action hero at all. Right. To be really clear, his job title is analyst, as in like CIA analyst, as in like sits at a desk, uh, ingests a lot of raw data and connects the dots uh, and, and makes recommendations uh, for, for for other people to act upon. It just so happens that that's like, you know, his, his primary function. And then he has a little bit of spicy action stuff uh, thrown in towards the end and, and gets to do a little gunplay and that sorts of thing. But uh, for me, and, and I speak uh, as someone who's read all of the Tom Clancy books uh, and, and is probably, I guess, of the people on this panel, the most ensconced in the Clancy verse. Um, I think of Jack Ryan as an analyst and um, and just who can do some action on the side. So suspense movie. Wait, wait, wait. Tell, tell us about the Clancy verse. Oh, it is it is vast. It is it is it is huge. Um, where to start? Um, so there is a a whole series of novels that he wrote himself. There's a bunch of spin-off novels that other people wrote. I guess uh, for all intents and purposes, like the core of the Clancy verse, and it continues to spiral out with a bunch of other. Uh, spin-off properties, including video games, and uh, uh, and then I guess there's a new Michael B. Jordan TV show, which I don't know where exactly is going to fit into any continuity. It's not like uh, uh, like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where like continuity is super super key and uh, across a bunch of different properties. Um, but uh, the books, you know, by and large, come from uh, you know the, the background of the backdrop of the Cold War. Um, start out mostly as again Jack Ryan as an analyst at a desk. Um, piecing together pieces of a puzzle and, and doing a little bit of action in the field um, and doing things that, that that other people can't do eventually it goes into a very weird not a weird is the right word but just like very right wing pol- political and like military uh, power fantasy territory but at its core is a different kind of power fantasy um, and again speaks of why this is more of a suspense movie rather than an action movie a, a, a power fantasy of ideas and of intellect um so uh, we, we we could go in a couple of different directions here. Talk more about sort of the broad, broader Clancy verse, or within this movie about how it's a power fantasy of intellect. I don't know what guys uh, what strikes your fancy. I'm kind of curious about this power fantasy of intellect thing. I mean, would you say that he really deduces a lot of stuff in this? I know there's a scene kind of at the beginning where he's like, "Oh, Ramius must be defecting," right? So there's that's that. the big one, yeah. And yeah. it's a power fantasy in particular because like. Uh, intellectual power fantasy and like you go into a room you have you're the smartest one in the room everybody else is being a doofus and going along with the conventional knowledge and you just like bam drops in knowledge and 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 win the day but it's kind of like a magical intuitive knowledge right i mean I, i suppose actual analysis is a very hard thing to make dramatically interesting like uh, you could, you can sort of imagine it in certain kinds of uh, mystery movies, like detective movies, where the where you're gathering clues, and there comes a point where you can actually put everything together and sort of say, yes, this does make coherent sense. My my sense with that scene in Red October is that it's more of like, 
More of a Sherlock Holmes moment, by which I mean that it cheats, because that's what Conan Doyle always does in Sherlock Holmes. Uh, when he says, oh, you had white clay on your shoes, and therefore you've been in Afghanistan, he doesn't bother to tell you earlier that the character had white clay on their shoes. So even if you were as smart as Sherlock Holmes, you can't beat Sherlock Holmes to the punch. Sherlock just sort of says, I have knowledge that that you did not have. It could as well be because like he, he talks to uh, the angel Metatron and was told that you've been in been in Afghanistan, and I feel like the the deduction that he must be defecting is kind of of that kind, right? It's like, oh, his wife died a year ago. Clearly, he's defecting. It's like that, that doesn't actually make sense. I, I hear you on that. I, my read of that scene is that it's just like sh- it, it it shortcuts a lot of the so presumed the, the homework that you have to fill in the gaps that Jack Ryan has done. You know, again at his desk uh, in in the CIA somewhere. Um, you know, as opposed to just like something a little bit more like uh, dramatic as it comes together that you see there. Um, again, that might be me um, filling in the gaps from my memory of the books and just a caveat. Um, it's been dec- over a decade since I've read the last read Tom Clancy book. Um, but it's hinted to in other ways to um, it, it's something as simple as like, you know, he has these photographs and he studied them a lot. And it, it speaks to kind of like just like, oh, and the and the great character establishing stuff at the beginning where it just pans over book upon book upon book about war and naval history and military badass stuff. Um, yeah. it, you know, it all says like this is a guy who has done and continues to do his homework. Now, that said, like, um, well, I guess that it, it, it tees up like the other sort of like, I guess, cheating or aha moment that he has when he's shaving. And it's like, how do you get people off of a submarine? How do you get people off of a nuclear sub? Ooh. Um, so that is, uh, I'd say, equal parts like, you know, he's done his homework and equal parts like Sherlock Holmes cheating kind of thing. Um, and, and by the way, it is also evident that like um, when you're making a movie about an analyst who's really smart and has a good thought process, he winds up uh, vocalizing his internal monologue a whole lot more than what he would in real life. And it's kind of obvious and a little bit distracting in that way. I think that there's also something to what you say about like this fantasy that that doing your homework and studying military stuff is what will save the world. That speaks very much to the Tom Clancy reader because mm-hmm. like, I, mean, yes. I, haven't, I haven't really read yes. a lot of Clancy. 12-year-old Mark Lee, yes, correct. <laughs> like that, the Tom Clancy novel is basically like, you know, uh, the the uh, the alpha class sub is 200 feet long and it's made out of steel but the steel is three inches thick and the bolts on the seal are like they're hexagonal and they have like exactly 12 little ridges on the screw part of the bolt oh but wait till i tell you about like the lighting system that the submarine has and just sort of goes on like this for for page after page after page and that basically it's like reading a technical blueprint that occasionally like somebody gets shot in yeah 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 i mean just a bit of backstory on tom clancy himself right he by his trade was like uh an insurance claims adjuster something like literally that mundane um and gained all of his most of his knowledge from like reading technical manuals um, and so, again, like power fantasy, yeah, for the author, for the reader, for for lots of people uh, all around. Jordan, I have a slightly different experience reading Tom Clancy novels <laughs> or yeah, I, I guess I guess reading the first maybe page and a half of a Tom Clancy novel. I think one was gifted to me because I was uh, I was a bookish 
uh, bookish youth. I was a bookish lad. And, you know, family friends who aren't really uh, acquainted with you or your interests, but who know the sort of Cliff Notes version of you, that you're a, you're a bookish youth, like, um, will often sort of give you novels you know, uh, and and because they are Cliff Notes people, <laughs> they don't know the right <laughs> the right novels to yeah. give you. They, they knew you well enough to know that you wanted a book, but not well enough to know that you would not consider this to be a book. <laughs> well, it, well, no, it was a book, and how it was like eight hundred pages. I don't remember which one, <laughs> which one, which one it was, but like it was a like a doorstep. It wasn't quite Pillars of the Earth level. Uh, uh, thick, but it was a uh, one hell of a doorstop of of uh, trade paper. Uh, no, sorry, this was before the trade paperback um, kind of became popular. Mass market, mass market paperback on the you know the pulpy newsprint and and uh, stuff. And and don't get me wrong, I had plenty of pulpy uh, mass market paperbacks that I loved. They were just all Star Trek The Next Generation novelizations. <laughs> so, please, I don't have a leg to stand on here as regards taste or uh, or anything like that. But I, I read the beginning of um, this Tom Clancy book that, you know, the, the name of which escapes me now. But I, uh, I got to the point where, you know, it described there was a sort of inciting incident where there was a, a bomb that went off and the enemy bomb or like a terrorist bomb or something like that went off and uh the when uh, and the i think the text um as as far as i can reconstruct it was something along the lines of this verbi- verbatim um when all of a sudden ellipsis new paragraph centered text all capitals bold and italicized boom <gasps> Followed by three exclamation marks. That sounds very exciting and awesome, Matt. Well, I don't see. What, did you have some sort of issue with this? Uh, I, my issue was that that uh, that I I you know try not to look askance at, at another's pleasures, but I realized that this was not the book for me. This was not the <laughs> this this was not the uh, mass market tome um, for this you know uh, budding budding young pedant. Uh, such as such as I was at the time. So, like, they are. I mean, Mark, they're they're not models, are they? Of of uh, literary art, are they? I don't know. What's your what's your complaint with this? Do you want it to say there was an explosion? Like, show don't tell, right? The explosion went boom. What, what was your problem exactly? That it was bold and italic? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I suppose though. Though to a certain extent, that was a kind of like that was a kind of performance, literary performance piece, right? That yeah, was. Uh, I mean, a, Matt, Matt, did you understand that it was a really big explosion? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I was given to understand that it was a really big explosion. I guess it was like a little bit of you know you're you're in uh, you're in literature and you don't realize that you're going to get into an art installation. You're going to get into a, like a, a, you know, poem concrete right in the middle of a, uh, uh, in, in the middle of what had been a, uh, uh, just standard narrative up to, up to that point. All right. I, I, I stand corrected. Thank you for, for, um, 
for you know opening my eyes to the to the vastness of the explosion I, I kind of want to go back and read it now. It feels like Tom Clancy got at some point a pep talk on like all the things you're supposed to do in books. Uh, so, for instance, there's something that people uh, I think this is a Roland Barge term, the term, the reality function, that sometimes you want to make your literary construct touch base with the real world, like by having a character do something that a real person would do or by setting it in a real city or something like that. And Clancy got this memo. And when he wants to do his reality function stuff, he does it as hard as he possibly can. Right. And gives you the full technical spec on every like button on every army officer's uniform. And then when you're going to have action, and you want to mimetically describe something that is actually happening in the story, he does it as hard as he possibly can. <laughs> Hence, boom, right? Uh, yeah, but that, that I mean, there, I think as hard as he possibly can is definitely a... Um, Definitely a good way of describing this, right? Like, so I, I don't know. I, and, and I'm doing, I'm like sticking out an exaggerated position for comic effects. I actually think that there is a real art, uh, to, or a real craft or what, you know, whatever word you prefer to use. But, um, uh, yeah, but the, the, there's a real craft to the, the, um, function of, I mean, what did, what would, what would Bart call it? What is the code in SZ that, uh, references the, the story moving forward? Um, like the, the mystery unfolding. Yeah. That's the, that's the hermeneutic code. Right. That, that, that there is something to, to do with that, with like structuring the release of information and, and managing, uh, creating and dispelling tension right that is that can be very very artful that can be very sort of finely tuned and if if you're sort of paying attention to that it can be you know it can be fun to read uh, a an action novel or uh, you know what i mean like a popular a popular book such as you would find in an airport bookstore or like ready player one or something like that even if there might be a lot in there that you you might find to take issue with you can sort of appreciate uh you can appreciate the kind of the successful creation of excitement right so you talk about the structured release of information um and a good example of this in, in Tom Clancy books and how he just freaking makes it work because he goes as hard as he possibly can is in one of the books, and I can't remember which one it is, uh, and, and, and across a lot of Tom Clancy books, there's a lot of like – this thing is happening in some different corner of the world. And, and like, there's like four of these things and they all come together for some global conflagration. I'm not even making this up. One of them is like a log falls off of a ship, a big piece of wood. <laughs> that is some structured release of wait, wait, information wait, 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 and, 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 and building a release of tension and eventually it hits something and it probably goes um you know space boom centered space, oh, no, no i was waiting i was oh i want i wanted to go wait wait splash <laughs> <laughs> right because it's less really 
It would be really amazing is if it was the same centered, bold, italic boom for, like, everything that possibly could be described that way. We're beating a dead horse here. He closed the door as quietly as possible. Boom! <laughs> I mean, we're we're, we're 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 making a point here, but we're also joking. But you know, going back to the movie here, and we're sort of where we started this conversation. It is a surprisingly subtle movie in a lot of ways. I mean, part of this is just because of um, uh, of of how it compares to modern action standards, but a lot of it is just because of like the really interesting character work and the great acting um, by Alec Baldwin, of course, um, as we remember from Team America: World Police, is the greatest. Uh, actor of our generation um but of course um that of <clears throat> sean connery and his yeah. totally not russian voice at all um yeah. let's let, i mean all that is to say like let's talk about ramius i mean i i would say across you know uh, i would say across the board fantastic performances in this film and like not a not a bad scene i mean maybe maybe the scene where james earl jones and alec baldwin make small talk for two minutes before getting to the point um (laughs) but that's that's the only slightly misjudged one i think and i think i get what he was going for but like um but it doesn't necessarily move the uh doesn't necessarily move the plot forward or um and and actually, you know what? I want to take that back because I actually appreciate the the willingness to take your time or to like spend thirty seconds on the turbulence thing in in the plane and to sort of go to sort of go at that at that deliberate pace. Um, yeah, just just across the board, fantastic uh, fantastic performances from everybody, right? Including the. Uh, um the uh not uh, who is the the uh US commander um right scott scott uh scott glenn uh, fantastic just like never completely unflappable in those giant dorky glasses uh right and just like saying very well to to everything that can happen and no no temptation at all to like chew the scenery or go for histrionics even you know sean connery pretty understated here pretty pretty still it's it's yeah. uh it's rad it's um this is kind of competence porn right uh, like people people being very very good at their jobs um in incredibly stressful situations where nobody really displays a lot of emotion you know um even like there's there's a bit at the end where the uh the evil submarine gets hit by its own torpedo and like the level of uh of upset that they get about that is um like the, the guy's number 2 says something like you arrogant fool you've killed us yeah, That's it, you know, followed by um, boom. <laughs> <laughs> this is the joke that keeps on giving. <laughs> it's actually it's pretty cool. I mean, at that moment, that's a complicated moment plot wise, right? Because you see, there's a lot of dramatic irony. Um, <laughs> is uh, there's a lot of dramatic irony. You know what's going on, and that this is the this is Captain uh, what's his name Tupolev um, in his uh, submarine, but that the people on in the boats in the lifeboats think that it's Red October, right? 
being being scuttled and that Ramius has sacrificed his life nobly to keep uh, the American hands off the the technology. So it's a really, you know, and, and Tim Curry, by the way, right? Tim Curry, totally, yeah. completely yeah. fantastic, sort of understated performance, looking right at Sean Connery and saying, you will receive the order of Lenin for this. It's one of my favorite things. Uh, one of my favorite things in this movie that, uh, you know, fan- another fantastic performance. I could just name a list of actors in this movie and like the things that they do that I think are awesome. Can I tell you something that's a, a matter of some shame to me? What's that? that like I, I watched this movie as a kid, and I always sort of wondered what the heck the Russian sailors thought was going on because yeah. I was quite young and I didn't get it. And I watched it again for this podcast. And then I read the plot summary on Wikipedia, and it was only upon reading the plot summary on Wikipedia <laughs> that I realized that they thought that it was Red October blowing up. And uh, that's why they were sad. Yeah. The, the, the officers and I will go below and scuttle the ship. <laughs> Scuttle, scuttle, scuttle the ship. Scuttle the ship. All right, so let's turn to the second half of this podcast where we just say things like Sean Connery. Yes. <laughs> no, let's, let's, let's not. Have we got all of our system? Yeah. Damn it, man. It begins with an S. Um, okay, so Jordan, you had an interesting word there, like competence porn, right? Like people who are exceptionally good at their jobs and cool under pressure. Um. That, by and large, I think is true. But the most interesting thing about the Ramius character, about how he is, on one hand, very much in control of the situation, but also does arguably reckless things and also doesn't really explain his actions well to his crew, in particular, like sending that letter, that trolling letter to the Soviet fleet command, basically saying, ha ha, I'm going to defect. Very reckless. Um, And and he does other things as well throughout the movie that kind of like, uh, calls a little bit into question his, his competence, like the stunt with the going through the the, the undersea canyon and that that sort of thing. Um, it makes for an interesting character, for sure. Um, and you know, someone like Sean Connery, who can pull off that um, you know mixture of gravitas, but also like uh, intensity and um, a little un- unpredictability. Right? You know, he, he sells it for sure. Um, yeah. But is, is it that simple to say that like? You know, there's this like dichotomy of the uh, the control versus the chaos going on in Ramius, or is it something else? I mean, if you wanted to be cynical about it, you might suppose that um, the reason that that stuff is there is because they needed to have a plot, and they like so if the Russians don't know, then they won't be chasing them, and then there's nothing to do. And also, they kind of want you to be wondering: Does he actually want to defect, or is he actually going to do a sort of a solo first strike on in in the coming nuclear Armageddon? So, like, it could be that a certain amount of that is going on. But then, as you say, uh, Connery has the gravitas to sort of pull it off, and you just sort of think of him as a, a tormented, tortured guy who feels the need to uh, to inform his superiors because he's still enough of a creature of the military or something like that, and, uh, and who pushes the submarine perhaps beyond its capabilities because although he wants to... Um, to give Red October to the Americans or to destroy Red October, it's not really quite clear what his what his plan is for it. He doesn't want it to exist, sort of, but he's also kind of in love with it, right? Um, and this is all stuff that is brought out without a ton of dialogue and mainly through like through Connery Connerying. Hmm. Is it? Yeah. I mean, in that, in the uh, what is that? The the Marianas Trench, right? 
uh, sequence. I, no, I don't. I don't think it's that. It's it's that particular geological feature, but uh, the the underwater canyon. Okay, sorry. Um, sorry, I get my I get my underwater geography all mixed up. Uh, but the yeah the the kind of doing the doing the run of the the underwater canyon. The, I mean, he's right. He's right at the edge, but there is a a point to it, right? It's to avoid. It's to avoid detection. Uh, isn't it? Or is it just it's just I think crazy? So, but there's point. also this section where he just like decides like let's do this faster. Yeah, let's 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 do it at eleven. Yeah, and it wasn't entirely clear that it's connected to trying to avoid detection on the surface. Sure, I mean the 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 sense and when the I sort of connect this to when he turns into the when he turns into the torpedo and it's kind of like he sort of knows there's a sense in which he knows something, um, not not through like superhuman means right like but but he knows something through long experience or or has great instincts through long experience for for what will work even if it's right at the edge of uh right at the edge of what's acceptable um or practicable he does this a couple of times right one is turning into the torpedo but earlier and then i think at the end of the canyon sequence um uh, when he ramps up the speed and then he like you know goes well past where they're supposed to turn and then at the very last minute turn so that the torpedo uh, misses the boat and then and then uh, crashes into the into the geological feature. Right. Like it's almost like he's like praying or meditating or tapping into something that is not uh, sort of your normal run of the day intellect kind of stuff. Right. So like that uh, speaks a lot of stuff that is heavily implied with Ramius's character. But it, I think in a lesser movie would have just been made extremely explicit and this we just have to infer right you know he's he's lithuanian his wife died under some sort of tragic circumstances we don't know exactly why our brain has to film the gaps like you know because lithuania was occupied by the soviets he has this grudge um that the wife died maybe something that you know he, he blames the soviet system for and then he's got this other like just like mystic stuff going on um i i love it to death i think it's uh, I, I think it's really compelling stuff contrast that to alec baldwin right making a just a wild ass guess about crazy ivan to starboard in the bottom half of the hour uh yeah. con- contrasted how oh, like is, is it of a, of a similar vein or is it like something different where it's i mean what's happening in that moment is is alec baldwin is kind of pretending to the same kind of knowledge the almost like monastic uh, academic knowledge that has come from studying um naval battles and studying this guy in particular and his long history and he is the sort of schoolmaster he taught all the people and so there's there's this kind of ordered method to his madness there's a you know there's an order to the stars and like alec baldwin can discern it and uh later on scott glenn asks him how'd you know i was going to do that and he's like look it was a 50 50 shot and i took it uh right rather rather than the the i feel like the slightly deeper the slightly profounder um tapping into that's a good way you describe it mark that sean connery is doing i would say that there's um it's an interesting game that the movie plays with that little moment because like when he says it, he doesn't seem to be 
like BSing, right? He he says like he always does it. He always goes left, and he does it with full Alec Baldwin sincerity. And we've seen him do this kind of thing before, right? Because he is the great analyst. So when uh, when he gets asked, "How did you know?" You expect him to give a real answer. And when he says, "Oh, I didn't know that," that's really quite surprising. And it seems like um, a an important moment for the character. A kind of like, um, I don't know if he. He becomes less. Uh, He's more less, unpredictable. Yeah, uh, more unpredictable and more human, right? Less, less, yeah. uh, less omniscient is not really the right word. Um, less fearsomely competent, right? Uh, he's he's suddenly being kind of a loose cannon. But there's, I mean, there are a couple of moments of that in in the movie. The other one is when he drops from, from the helicopter, right? When he, he uh, lets go out of the cable and they head back to the ship without him. Um, and he's, you know, he, he's overboard and he could very easily die under those, uh, under those circumstances. So it's, um, you know, the, the sense it, and, and like, it's always at moments when he, realizes like he's he's completely thwarted he's at an impasse and there's no other there's no other thing to do but take a crazy shot so to a certain extent it has that like mathematical you know analytical quality to it it's just that like okay the powers of the powers of analysis have taken us uh can take us only so far now now we need to do the uh rely on the powers of of action hero bravado or um you know or something something like that and or, or something uh Related but slightly different is how he refuses to smoke a cigarette uh, twice in the movie, but in the third time in order to bridge the gap with the Russians, takes the cigarette. Yeah. It's like just like, you know, not um, following the pattern, not sort of, you know, going playing by type or by by the book, um, changing things up, um, acting upon intellect as well as instinct as the moment calls for it. You're a loose cannon, Ryan, but you get results. Yeah. It's it's like he's a Spock that gradually turns into a Kirk over the course of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then like Oh, uh, that's good. Yeah. And that he um you know, he yeah, he flies out from London a uh, a Spock and flies back from London a Kirk sleeping like a baby on the um you know, on the uh, on the airplane, despite all the all the turbulence, you'd think that there would be a woman involved, right? There's not even a metaphorical woman, I think, in this, unless you unless you. No, count... Doctor Crusher is in this movie. Well, right, yeah. Speaking at the at the very beginning. Speaking of Star Star Trek, um, yeah, who who was replaced? Well, Alec Baldwin was replaced as Jack Ryan by Harrison Ford and Gates McFadden, Doctor Crusher, who is his British wife in the film, is replaced by Ann Archer as his American wife in uh, uh, Clear and Present Danger and Patriot Games. The two, I mean, I think the two other films in the in this um, kind of run of Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan, Jack Ryan movies. I mean, but the, the I, I guess the boat, boats are referred to as, as her, right? There's a... Um, that and the, uh, the sea is the uh, is the ultimate mistress, I suppose that that he has tamed uh, and can. Other can... than that, this movie is all dudes. This <laughs> yeah. is, well, this is like and... it seriously fails the Bechdel test in so many different ways. 
Is there something going on with him kind of like regressing in age over the course of the movie? So like at the start, he's presented as a father first. You see him with his kid, right? And and she has like the little toy animal. And then at the end, uh, you see him on the plane with the big toy animal. So it's almost like he has shrunk down, right, to uh, to her size relative to the animal. And it's... It sort of takes place over his encounter with the sea, the primal mother, and with Sean Connery, the primal father. It was pretty half baked. And, and, like, and he does, no, 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 he does return to uh, the place of his youth. Exactly. Where he grows up. Yeah. And that he's, he's right in that final scene, that kind of blue tinged scene with Connery on the boat. He's talking about learning to fish as a child. And he, he sort of returns to, uh, to the primal scene where, where the boy first sees the fish for the first time. <laughs> he also does something pretty immature towards the end of the movie, which is uh, do an impression of someone that he's working with. <laughs> Remember this, right? When, yeah. when, he's, when he's being fired upon, he's like, he does his Sean Connery voice. He's just like, some things don't react well to bullets here. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like in a mocking way. Which is incredible. Yeah. Which, by the way, like I mean, it's in, especially in retrospect, because Alec Baldwin uh, later like much was much more likely to flex his comedic muscles on Thirty Rock, and you hear him do all sorts of voices. He's a, it's a fantastic mimic, um, but to hear him do it in this very serious, decidedly non-comedic movie is just a delight. I feel like Alec Baldwin. Secret. Oh yeah, yeah. You say. No, 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 you, go ahead. Go go go. Well, I was I was going to go down the the rabbit hole of Alec Baldwin's career. I mean, I feel like he's kind of an ambivalent leading man he's certainly an ambivalent action hero and he he did not have this career right he didn't i feel like he could have had he's got the looks and all and everything for the bruce willis career and he he uh, never went that way he went he went completely different in in almost a more well in a more dramatic actor in almost a more character direction um later in life I feel like there's something, it says something profound about America, not quite sure what, that like Jack Ryan grows up to be Jack Donaghy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's funny, right? Yeah. Like live, uh, you know, if you're, if you're the hero, live long enough, you'll, and you'll become the villain. If you're the, if you're the leading man, live long enough and you'll become the parody of a leading man and live even longer and you'll become a character actor doing, uh, doing a skating impression of the par- the president on, uh, yeah. the nation's leading <laughs> sketch show. Or just like, okay, so you, if you're going to fight communism, then you'll be capitalism. And then once capitalism wins, and then what, right? Right. Yeah. You got to, you become, it's like Baudrillard. You, pro, you progress to like the simulation, the final level of the simulacrum, you know? <laughs> hey, so can we talk a little bit, uh, dragging it back to the Jack Ryan TV show, um, about the way that it's different for him to be fighting terrorists than for him to be fighting communists? Sure. I mean, this. I actually I heard an interview with um, not Damon Lindelof, but one of the other, the other or one of the other head people from Lost, who is the kind of the driving force behind the Jack Ryan TV show, and um, they said they they tried to reboot one of the stories from the novels, one of the canonical stories in the contemporary, in the present day, and it feels false. And he pointed out that it's not that it, the stories haven't aged well, but it's not exactly that they haven't aged well. It's that they were sort of political thrillers of the moment and spoke to 
spoke, you know, very directly to contemporary concerns. And so the, the, um, the next, the next thing has like had to speak to the concerns of today. Like the reboot had to be about an, a, a national anxiety that America has. And I think that this is important, um, in a couple ways. The, the, uh, the new Jack Ryan, the John Krasinski Jack Ryan, is a financial analyst. He does like um, like oversees bank transactions and stuff like that, and monitors this rather than like uh, being a naval intelligence analyst, right? And like writing profiles of people, right? James Earl Jones at the beginning of this movie says, you did the bio on him for us, meaning like you wrote the CIA sort of official Cliff's notes about who this guy is, and presumably they have everyone on every major officer in in the Russian military. Um, And that he's like dealing with like pictures of equipment and dealing with people. And in the new one, he's dealing with money, um... And he's dealing with virtual things like electronic transactions, uh, rather than you know, rather than like you know, materiel, right? And Matt, that please tell me there's a cryptocurrency subplot. Oh no, there series. isn't. It would be so much. Oh, be missed so, opportunity. It would missed be opportunity. so good. Um, there is a drone pilot subplot that is kind of a fantasia. It's completely unrealistic, but it's it's pretty good. Um, well, that I feel like speaks directly to the 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 change dynamic of the old Jack of the old Cold War Jack Ryan, or at least the the, the, the Clancy novel um, uh, plot lines, and then this new TV series, which which I haven't seen, but I'm getting a sense uh, from you what it's about. In particular, that it's about terrorism. It speaks to um, a decidedly different geopolitical situation. This might be obvious, but it's worth stating, right? Um, the Cold War stuff is about great powers clashing, and we see that, of course, in in, in grand scale in uh the hunt for red october right the two massive fleets squaring off against each other we also have this like very advanced soviet technology which is something that the americans don't have um uh, i mean by the 80s you know the, the entire you know uh soviet military industrial complex was not doing so great but it does come from a lineage of uh, as uh captain ramia said yuri gagarin and you know and and the, the space program and things like that right contrast that with the fights we're having with terrorism right now, right now, a very asymmetrical warfare, right? It's some dude in Afghanistan in a cave with an internet connection um, and like some cheap stuff uh, and that, that can that can sow chaos throughout the world. Very, very different uh, ge- geopolitical paradigms. Yeah, it's interesting because like the um, the scene when he goes to to shoot the cook, right? Um, this is again something that when I saw, it, I was too young to understand what the heck was going on with it, really. And I was just like, "Wait, now they're going to have a gunfight on the sub? This like, who's the cook? I don't even remember. Uh, I guess there was sabotage earlier. I'd forgotten that plot. But watching it again, like, I think it's really significant that it's down in the missile bay or whatever. Oh this yeah, totally. And there's this beautiful Dutch angle shot where, like, uh, after Sean Connery says for the first t- time the line about things not responding well to bullets, where like. Uh, it pans out from a tight shot on Baldwin to suddenly these glowing red, like, 
you know, cylinders that are dwarfing him. And these are all of like the, the missiles and they have their numbers on them. And it's, it's great because there's no red in the shot when it's tight and then it pulls out and you've got these glowing red machines, which are the end of the world, right? And like, that's really the danger. It's not that the, the problem with the Soviets is not that they're particularly evil. Honestly, the Soviet Union running effectively is not a threat here. Uh, like, if if Ramius hadn't gone rogue, then they would have just sort of stayed doing their thing. Um, the problem is the machine itself. And when the uh, the cook is thinking to detonate a nuke, you know, this could trigger World War III for sure, right? Uh, but that's because the machine has kind of been set in, set in motion. So it's almost the same worry as Dr. Strangelove. And for all that, uh, Clancy is so in love with his machines in the prose. Like, it seems like the machines are awesome. So actually the thing that's scary and i'm curious i mean in, in the new one is it the military hardware that is the that is the thing that's that we're scared of or is it like is it people or is it you know what what is it exactly military, are there comparable shots military hardware is people it's <laughs> it's people no it's i mean um there is a sense in in which the Western world is to blame for quote unquote creating terrorists by not uh, by sort of creating outgroups, you know, and um, and sort of neglecting them with uh, uh, with a negligence so uh, so completed it borders on on cruelty, so so intentional it borders on cruelty. Um, there's a actually, you know, ironically, there. Well, it's it's a little ham-fisted in terms of irony, but they're the main terrorist, the big terrorist bad guy in the Jack Ryan TV show. There's a scene in which he is living as an expatriate in France, uh, you know, grow, having grown up in France, and he tries to get a job at a bank. You know, and is laughed out of the bank for not being, you know, not being our sort of person, you know, not being our our kind of people, and that, uh, and you know, and this turns him evil uh, or, or something like that. But the the threat is no, the threat is these. Um, the threat is that these these attacks, and I, I mean, I guess I, I should stay away from the plot a little bit. Um, the threat is that the attack is uh, invisible, right? And it's um, it's sort of fiendish. It it turns traditional ideas of safety and of refuge uh, on on their head. So it's going where you think you're safe. Um, the the attack is going to get you there the thing that that you uh that you never saw coming so things like um d- dirty bomb type stuff or bio weapons or or, uh, or things like this where it's actually not the boom um the the boom is uh the boom is relevant but it's a red herring uh it's the it's sort of the silent it's the kind of silent aspects of 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 modern warfare that are going to get you where you live this version of uh, of the Tom Clancy novel, rather than having the giant bold face boom in the center of the page, there's actually like a like five point font boom down in the corner yeah. that you don't even realize is there, and then like 
after about 100 pages of this, it says, like, look down, like, where, right where you had your thumb, where you were touching it. Right. You've been, you've been boomed already. You know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, going back to the, the threat of the boom in the movie The Hunt for Red October and that sort of shootout in the missile silo, Jordan, I actually uh, I want to quibble with uh, your interpretation of that scene um, and how the cook is going to, like, set off a nuclear bomb in there. Um, I, that's not, I thought, what the plan was. Because remember, the cook is I, my I, maybe again this is me filling in the gaps from the book um the cook is a saboteur but the cook is also like he's a kgb agent um yeah. and that is uh, alluded to at the beginning with the political officer before ramius kills him um and his mission is not to set up a nuclear bomb because that would be super bad and lead to world war three and incinerate the motherland no he's being loyal to the motherland he's just trying to as ramius said incinerate the ship just like set off some sort of chain reaction that would just cause a big fire and sink the ships and, and prevent it from getting into the American hands. Um, I well, mean, uh, would you describe something much more uh, sort of dramatic and like global, uh, you know, the, the global conflagration as opposed to uh, just a little boat in in uh, on, on its way to America? Um, uh, but uh, it, it, I think it speaks to the Red October, the Hunt for Red October, not being a totally complete cold war movie in terms of like you know ideologies pitted against each other and like you know the the specter of uh nuclear war. although it's it is certainly you know the plot point you know the the first strike capability and this that and the other but it's like not as hardcore of a cold war movie as it could have been is what i'm saying yeah they, they don't dwell on it too much i think you know you might be right i might be reading too much into it i i do think that for sure the kgb officer's plan is just to blow up the ship so that it doesn't fall into american hands yeah. but he's not in the torpedo bay he's in the missile bay because there's a line where uh where alec baldwin asks like can he launch a missile and ramius says uh isn't it funny i think of it as alec baldwin and ramius that tells you something doesn't it ah. um, <laughs> that like uh, that ramius says no but he can blow one up so like it, it seemed to me and i might have been reading into it that uh the KGB officer, or I think he's actually a GRU officer, although he's just following his limited plan, what he's about to do, although he hasn't maybe thought this through, is detonate a nuclear weapon close to the American shore, which, like, you know, even if the, regardless of whether the fallout would actually be catastrophic, would probably trigger uh, an, an out, out and out hot war with, uh, with nukes and, and everything. But they, there's no scene where they like they talk about this being something that's been averted or anything like that. So maybe you're right. Maybe it's uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan, it it, uh, it seems like it would be a missed opportunity if we uh, had you on the podcast and didn't talk a little bit about the the music of this film, other than Russian choral singing. Uh, is there? Do you have any observations about it? Did anything in particular jump out to you uh, as you were watching it? Or was it a good uh, Hollywood score by Basil Polidorus and just uh, just kind of sitting there telling you what to feel and heightening suspense as, as it went along? Well, this movie won a bunch of awards for sound and for music, and I think it deserves all of them. There's a really interesting game that it plays with, like, the organic sounds so like you have the choral singing both uh just running around in the soundtrack and when there's one very prominent scene where the uh the russian crew sings the uh you know the the hymn of the soviet union or whatever it's called their national anthem and then you have a lot of 
mechanical sounds, which are kind of musically tinged, right? So the sonar pings are very musical sounding. And then you have mechanical sounds, which are not musical at all. These sort of roars and, and whooshes. And there's, a, I think, a very kind of like sculpted relationship between uh, organic sounds and mechanical sounds and soothing sounds and menacing sounds. The torpedoes are kind of like the the nastiest sounding things of all, much more uh, much louder and more menacing sounding than the submarines, which of course makes sense from a plot mechanic point of view, but doesn't make sense from a like size of propeller point of view. And then the, the music also has sort of organic and uh, inorganic components. So there's a lot of great 80s synths and drum machines, but then also a whole bunch of choral singing uh, in the background, very prominently at the beginning, where there's something that's apparently called the Hymn to Red October, which is just the Polydorus original, but sounds for all the world like an orthodox hymn of some kind. And then also just sort of like, ah, kind of stuff, uh, which is what plays when you have that wonderful shot of like the missile missile silos in uh, that I was just talking about earlier yeah i mean there there is a uh kind of a fun thing where the morse code which you imagine as being beeps on a telegraph line you know in the kind of canonical idea of what morse code is is uh transformed into kind of light flashes between the two periscopes of the of the um the submarines and then the response is the ping is the kind of like the single hit on the triangle or something something like that right where where this thing that you would imagine would be this cacophony of beep 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 is is actually silent uh and the response is this kind of pure um this pure tone, uh, a tone so pure that it's kind of non, uh, it's kind of non-signifying, right? Like it's not even in a in a, a musical system, um, right? It, and because uh, it has no uh, uh, referent, it must be termed that which is not a sign. Just because we brought up Roland Bart earlier. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, yeah, they they do establish. He says, "Can he ping once for yes?" Right. Um, so, like, there's kind of a fig leaf of it having meaning, but it's much more just. Uh, it's like a first contact scenario, right? Where uh, where the Americans try to say all this stuff, and then the unknown presence just sort of like says, "I'm speaking to you." Like we we have a channel of a communication. That's really what it sort of seems to do, right? Yeah, and it's like uh, it's like I guess it's in in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where like there is a light and a music component. There's like a a, a visual and an audio component of the uh, of the first encounter with the the um, alien life form. Hey guys, uh, it might be time to uh, leave our discussion of the hunt for Red October running silently underwater. So I want to say thank you very much for listening and thank you to Jordan and to Mark for podcasting with us. Uh, and, uh, congratulations to, uh, to Pete, um, who, uh, celebrated a big life event uh, that we were all at this, uh, this weekend by the time you, you hear this, uh, by the time you hear this, let's just say on future episodes of the podcast, Pete won't make any more references to his girlfriend or to his fiance. So, uh, congratulations, Pete. And, um, we're glad to be there with you. He will be married to the sea. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, yeah, and actually, uh, Mark Jordan and I are going to be singing the Red October hymn in the <laughs> in the ceremony for uh, for our dear friend and captain Pete Fenson. No, we won't. That would be that would be sacrilege and, and a travesty of, of the beautiful ceremony that Pete has planned. Anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture. To a level of scrutiny, it probably doesn't deserve. And really, you need to do Sean Connery doing a Russian accent through his Scottish accent. He does he does Russify it up like five percent. <laughs> I I heard an interview with uh, <laughs> with John McTiernan as I was preparing for this, where he said Sean Connery is not a linguist, but he did do the best he could for us. <laughs> I also heard that uh, Connery originally didn't want to take the part because he was like, Russia is no longer an aggressive military power. You know, we're in the waning days of the Cold War. This is unrealistic, <laughs> which considering that Sean Connery had started, you know, Highlander seems like a weird, a weird hill to die on. <laughs>